Uh, tonight we are uh, starting uh, a new series in the book of Ezra. Uh, Ezra is a book in the Old Testament. Uh, if I was thinking this week, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon from the book of Ezra. And um, I've had the privilege of being, of growing up in the church. I've heard a lot of sermons, and I don't think I've got one under my belt from the book of Ezra. Uh, now, I'm not being the hipster preacher and just trying to pick something that's just different for the sake of being different. Uh, I really think Ezra has something to tell us, and Ezra falls in the same kind of biblical period that Esther uh, was in. And then once we finish Ezra, Ezra. We'll have Christmas season, and then we'll move on uh, to Nehemiah after Christmas. And so we're kind of camping out in these exilic and post-exilic years. We'll talk more about what those terms mean. Uh, but you might think, why, why do we do this? Why do you preach through obscure books, Marsh? Uh, it seems to be a habit of yours. Well, I guess you're right. I guess I kind of have a little hipster preacher in me. Uh, but part of it, too, is I, that God's word is God's word. So whether you're reading something that's familiar or unfamiliar, it's all equally inspired. That's what the scriptures tell us about itself. Uh, so all of these things are, 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 are useful uh, for our edification in the faith. And so that's why we're in. We also do it this way so that you might have some idea of how to read the scriptures for yourselves during the week. Uh, that you don't just shotgun it. If you shotgun it, and if you just shotgunned it and you turned to Ezra chapter 2, uh, it'd be tough to figure out what's going on in Ezra chapter 2. I had a hard time figuring out what Ezra chapter 2 was going, what was going on there this week. Uh, but it gives you a context for just how you might do that yourself. It'd be a good practice to implement if you don't already. So uh, let's pray and we'll begin our time together. And Christ, Christ, we do come to you tonight, and we, um, this is an hour of need for us, uh, Lord, that we uh, do come to you as broken people. We do come to you as hurting people. Uh, a lot of us have endured uh, real tragedy uh, this week, that we have encountered um, our own sin. We've encountered Satan himself. Uh, Lord, we have encountered evil, uh, a fallen world. And uh, Lord, so we come to you for answers. We come for you to, uh, uh, to put us back together again. And so Lord, I pray you would do that uh, through your word and by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I remember growing up and my parents talking about that they could remember the place they were when JFK died. I remember my parents talking about they could remember the place they were uh, when Martin Luther King died. And I got to thinking, what are those moments for me? I'm 38, coming up on 39. What are the moments that I won't forget that have happened in my lifetime? Well, one was the OJ verdict. Happened when I was a freshman in high school. I'll never, ever forget the OJ verdict. Uh, I mean, we had to endure months and months of that media coverage. So it was just, it wasn't so much about OJ. It was just finally we can quit talking about this guy. Uh, another thing that I'll never forget is I'll, ne- I'll never forget 9-11. I had just gone, I was a sophomore in college, and I just got back from a run, and I was standing there looking at the TV. My roommates were sitting there, and we just couldn't believe it. Uh, another thing I'll never forget is Katrina. I'll never, ever forget Katrina and seeing what happened in the news. Well, probably the reason I won't forget it is because we lived in Birmingham at the time, and a lot of people who lived in New Orleans, uh, they came up to Birmingham to live. And we had a lot of those people uh, come to our church and live in our neighborhoods, which was a real privilege to be able to do that. But it was impactful for me to live in Birmingham as opposed to still living here. But I did a, little, did a little digging on Katrina this week. Well, it happened, oddly enough, 14 years ago. Seems crazy, but August 29, 2005, Katrina hit New Orleans. It, it, it resulted in almost 2,000 deaths, over 70 
billion, 70 billion dollars of damage. And 14 years later, there are some neighborhoods in New Orleans uh, that are still devastated. Uh, one is the Lower Ninth Ward. Uh, the Lower Ninth Ward uh, had a po- has a population today of 5,000 people. Uh, before the hurricane, it had a population of 14,000 people. And where the Lower Ninth Ward is located, uh, it, it, it's just east of the Mississippi River. In fact, there's a, a levee right along the edge of the Lower Ninth Ward. And that levee busted when a barge hit it. And when the barge hit it, the levee broke. And the Lower Ninth Ward uh, had up to 12 feet of water in its neighborhood. Lower Ninth Ward was the last neighborhood to get running water. It was the last neighborhood to get electric. It was the last neighborhood to be pumped dry. So the devastation, it, was, it literally was catastrophic. You had homes that were lifted off their foundations and they just floated away. I saw pictures this week that there's just lot after lot that are just piles of rubber, or, or rub, not rubber, rubble and, um, uh, and, and, and unmowed grass. That's what it looks like. And at the time, shortly after, the government offered some buyouts. Some people took them. A lot of people didn't. Others have tried to rebuild, but they can't afford it because the cost of construction is more than what their house is worth, so the bank won't loan money. Now, the Lower Ninth Ward, this was some people's home neighborhood. It was a place of pride. It was a place of belonging and community. And now it's just a place that's a loss of hope. Now, can you imagine something like happened to Lexington? I just, I can't get my mind around that. And I was here for both the ice storms, both in 03 and 09, but they were nothing like Katrina. But when you reflect on, even if the ice storm hit you particularly hard, or if you think about being a part of Katrina dead on in New Orleans, it's easy to, at some point, kind of depersonalize them because they're based on the weather. But things get really personal when the devastation of your city has come at the hands of a geopolitical power. And this was the predicament of God's people. This is where they found themselves on several occasions throughout their history. Remember, uh, back in the early part of their history, they were enslaved in Egypt. And Moses led them back to the promised land. They were being held captive by the geopolitical power of Egypt. And that period of time is called the Exodus. And the Exodus has a sequel, and it's the biblical time period that we're in. But people aren't leaving Egypt to go to the Promised Land. They're leaving what was Babylon to go to the Promised Land. And this is the period that we see in Esther. It's the period we see in Ezra. It's the period that we will see in Nehemiah. And during this time, the the geopolitical power that oppressed them was Babylon. Babylon came into Jerusalem, destroyed their city, mopped down the walls of their city, crushed the temple... And then carted all the Jews off from Jerusalem back to Babylon in the year 587 B.C. Now all of the Jews are being held in captivity in Babylon. And while they're being held in captivity, Persia overthrows Babylon. And now they're not, in, they're not captives to the Babylonians, but they're captives to the Persians. So now when you get to Ezra 1, verse 1, it's 539. It's been 48 years that they've spent in captivity. And the king of Persia at the time is King Cyrus. And King Cyrus releases them from captivity. He gives them an Egypt that they're allowed, an edict that they're allowed to return home. 
and 50,000 of those people choose to do so. Among those 50,000, is their leader Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel is a descendant of King David, and you have Joshua, a priest. So now that they return home, they have one objective, and one objective only, and it's to rebuild the temple. But can you imagine being these Jews? If you're 48 or older, and you're one of these 50,000 Jews, the last time that you were in Jerusalem, your city was a smoking pile of junk. And the city that you used to call home. But it's not just a place you used to call home. It's a sacred place. And now you're returning to it. But if you're under 48 years old, all you've heard about this, all you've heard about this city are glory stories from your elders. And now you show up as one of those 50,000 people, either 48 or older or younger than 48. You either experience an acute sense of trauma, a PTSD of sorts, or you encounter a lot of disappointment because it's not as glorious as the stories you've heard. And isn't that true for all of us when we think about our lives? Our lives really are a wreck. And by God's grace, we don't know how bad off we really are. If we knew how bad off we really were, then we would end our lives. So it's God's mercy that he only gives us glimpses of how sin has laid waste to our hearts. But it's not just our hearts that are left in shambles. So is our church. Now, I know we've only been around for seven months. It's hard to screw things up in seven months. And I really am excited about what's going on here. I'm encouraged, but on this side of heaven, we will never be who we're supposed to be. And when we see our community this way, it'll always keep us needy. It'll always keep us praying, and that's a really good thing. So your heart's left in shambles, our church is in shambles, whether you realize it or not. But so is our society. I mean, seriously. The violence, the hatred, the moral free-for-all, the poverty, the environmental crisis are all things that should keep us awake at night. So sure, we've not been in literal captivity like Israel was in these days. Nor is or has our city been in physical ruins. But our hearts are. Our church is. Our city is. And all are in need of being rebuilt. They're all in need of renewal. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to be unpacking this whole idea of renewal as we work our way through Ezra. And we'll come back to it after Christmas with Nehemiah. So today we're going to go through chapters one to three. Uh, We're just going to read the sections uh, that I have here. Uh, if, if you have a good amount of self-control and, can't check, and aren't checking your fantasy team every 30 seconds, um, for some of us, uh, then it would be a really good thing to have your Bible app open. We just couldn't put 100 verses in the bulletin this week. Uh, there are also Bibles there in your pews. Uh, they're NIV, not ESV, but it's close enough. You can figure it out. Um, so let's read uh, our passage together. We'll start in Ezra 1, verse 1, through verse 5, and then the end of chapter 3. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 8. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Gadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The word of the Lord. All right, so let me just summarize these first three chapters. Let's start with chapter one. In chapter one, what we just read and going forward, you see that Cyrus, who's a foreign king, he gives Israel their emancipation papers. And it's really shocking if you think about it. God's people are freed and they didn't have to fight for it. You didn't have the Israelites rise up against the Persian and beat the Persian army and now they're free. I know it sounds really unlikely, but it just proves that God is the God not just of the Jews, but he's even the God of foreign rulers like Cyrus. So even though it seems unlikely, it just gets better for Israel. Because not only does Cyrus let them go, and they don't have to fight for their freedom, but Cyrus also offers to pay for the construction of their temple. But it gets even better. Cyrus has access to all the, the vessels of worship that existed in the temple when Babylon conquered Israel. And all of those worship vessels got put in his treasury. And now they've been sitting in his treasury. He sends his people home with a bunch of cash and all those worship vessels that the Israelites probably thought were gone forever. So it's an amazing thing. That's chapter one. Chapter two. 
Chapter 2, if you look at chapter 2, if you've got your electronic Bible or your, uh, your, your paper Bible in front of you, you'll see chapter 2. It seems like this meaningly, meaningless list of names. It seems insignificant to the modern reader. It just looks like a, a bunch of names and titles like temple servants, Solomon's servants, servants, Levites, and the priests along with the heads of household. All right, now you got chapter 3. Chapter 1, you have the freedom announced. Chapter 2, you have the individuals who take advantage of that announcement. And then chapter 3 tells us what they do when they return. And what they did is they came, they worshipped, they set up the altar, and they began to gather materials to build the temple. So if you take the first three chapters, and then you zoom out a little bit, what you'll see is that what God is doing, and what God is doing is that he's bringing renewal to three different places. He's bringing renewals to individuals. He's bringing renewal to the church. And he's bringing renewal to the city. Let me put it another way. He's bringing renewal to your heart. He's bringing renewal to your community. And he's bringing renewal to your world. That's what God is doing in Ezra 1 to 3. And that's what he's doing for me and you. That's the rebuilding project that he's up to. Even though our circumstances look very different than the circumstances of the people in their text, they really don't. So let's look at the renewal of the individual. All right, so if you were able to look at chapter 2, even if you weren't, it's okay. You can just trust me. But in chapter 2, there is this long list of names. And it does seem unimportant. But what the author could have done, the author could have lumped all of those names together into a clump and then just labeled them Israelites. But he didn't. Instead, he took the time to give the names of individuals along with where they were from and along with who they were related to. So what does this do? What's the effect? Well, the effect is is that it humanizes them and it orientates us to the importance of the individual. Now, this plays really, really good in America. We love individualism because we are highly oriented to the individual. Because our culture, think about it, it stresses your individual goals, the rights of the individual. We tend to be more motivated by personal rewards and benefits. But then the Bible comes along and it affirms this view with something like this list of names in Ezra 2. Now, this is a good word for us today. Because from one angle, renewal does indeed start with you. Now, there is a corporate dimension to our faith as well that we're going to see in just a minute. But it's really easy for our faith not to become personal and not to become meaningful to us as an individual. Because especially in Kentucky in 2019, we can just kind of ride the subcultural Christianity waves. And that's a real hindrance, a real threat to individual renewal. During grad school, uh, the only time I've not lived in Kentucky, uh, we lived in Birmingham, we lived in Boston, uh, right after we got married. And when I compare uh, Kentucky with Birmingham and Kentucky with Boston, the first thing you might think of is the weather. First thing you might think of uh, is the way people talk. And man, really different how people talk in Boston, how people talk in Birmingham. 
But when I think of comparing Kentucky with Birmingham and Boston, what I think about is cultural Christianity. Now, when I, when I use this term, cultural Christianity, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a general belief that Jesus was the Son of God, that he really did rise from the dead, that he died on the cross for sins, that the Bible's important, that you should say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays, that Caleb should be one of your presets on your radio, that you should go to church with your grandma on Christmas and Easter, that you would probably mark Christian in your religious preference box, that's subcultural Christianity. And when you move to Boston, subcultural Christianity doesn't exist. I'm not saying there aren't Christians. <laughs> I'm just saying that subcultural Christianity doesn't exist. And then when I think about Birmingham, cultural Christianity is even thicker in Birmingham than it is in Kentucky. And subcultural Christianity is a dangerous thing because here's what it does. It lulls you into thinking that you're actually converted because you can check all the boxes when the truth is that your renewal hasn't touched your heart. You would be glad to be clumped into a lump, but you're not so sure that you want to be named. So sure, you might believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but have you ever believed that he died for you? Sure, you might believe that Jesus rose again from the dead to bring new life, but has he brought new life to you? Here's what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here's the question. Do you know Jesus? Not, do you know some things about him? Not, can you check all the boxes? But do you know him? Has he brought renewal to you? Now that's renewal on an individual level. Let's talk about renewal in the church. Notice what the first thing that they do when, when the exiles, when the Israelites return home. When they come home, the very first thing they do is they don't build their own houses they build an altar. Building an altar, building a foundation of the temple, gathering, gathering resources to build the temple is the central focus of the first three chapters of the book of Ezra. Because the temple's been torn down. It's been, it needs to be rebuilt. Public worship has got to be restored. Because seeking God in public worship was at the very heart of who the Jews were, and it's at the very center of who we are as Christians. I'm often asked, uh, as pastor, uh, people who tend to be new around here, they say, I'd really like to get more involved. And that's a great question for a pastor. That means you like what's going on around here. I love that question. But I also feel some pressure to respond. 
I feel some pressure to respond and gives them some things to do when really what might be most important for this individual might be to really hone in and make Sunday corporate public worship a huge part of their life. Because God wants to bring renewal, not just to you, but to us. And when you make Sunday corporate worship a huge part of your life, you're joining in with God's people. You're coming around the word. You're coming to feast with Jesus and his family. You're singing songs in community. And all this helps you realize that you are more than an individual. Because what individualism does is it causes you to replace church with listening to way better sermons online. Instead of listening to sermons in the context of a community. What individualism does is it causes you to view prayer and meditating on the scripture as something that you do with a cup of coffee on your back porch. As opposed to something that you do in the context of community and Sunday worship. See, if renewal happens, if God is to rebuild his kingdom. It's going to come to your heart and it's going to come in our church by Sunday worship being important. But it comes to one other place. It comes to the city. Now, I didn't see this when I read through Ezra 1 to 3 the first few times, but because this is a somewhat obscure place, I've got to really lean on uh, the scholars and I read uh, commentaries on Ezra, three of them. And all three of them brought up the same point. And it brought up the, the point that in chapter 2, verses 43 through 58, that over 50% of the names in those 16 verses are of people who were not ethnically Jews. In other words, the people of God at this point in their history, they're made up of Jews and Gentiles. There's natives and foreigners. Some people who weren't born Jews, their family wasn't Jewish, became believers in Yahweh, the covenant God. Now, you might think that the people of God in the Old Testament, that they're all Jews, but they're not. There's lots of places where non-Jews come to faith in the Old Testament. Now, it's true the Jews were God's chosen race, but they were supposed to be ready to include all kinds of non-Jews into their kingdom. When God founded them as a people with Abraham, he told Abraham that they were going to be blessed so that they might be a blessing, not to themselves, but to the nations. So when renewal comes to your heart, when it comes to our church, it will inevitably come to those who are outsiders as well. So now you think about renewal. You think about everything going on in your heart. You think about everything going on in our church, everything going on in our city, and it's overwhelming, isn't it? Because our lives, our church, and our city really is in a pile of rubble. And we're supposed to get to work and put it back together again? Are you freaking kidding me? You, you might say, Marsh, if I'm, if I'm honest, I'd rather live in the rubble than do anything about it. And I hear you. Getting sober is hard work. Cultivating virtue is tough. Pursuing justice is exhausting. 
Loving those who are different from you is rough. Working through trauma, fighting mental illness, maintaining hope while dealing with a physical malady, losing a loved one is very, very difficult. But here's the hope in our text. It's in verse 1 of chapter 1. Did you see it? God stirred Cyrus. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. God stirred his people. So God's stirring, brothers and sisters. What's behind Cyrus's announcing God's people's freedom and what's behind the Israelites getting to work on the temple is God stirring them into action. This is why Paul can write in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, that God is at work in you to bring about his good pleasure. In one way, God is giving you the energy. Or in the other way, you really are obeying. So it really should humble us to know that God is the first mover, that he is the cause behind any genuine lasting renewal. It's humbling because we tend to hear a message like this and we give up because we think it's all on us. Or we jump right in thinking it's all on us. When really it's about God stirring in you. And knowing this fact that God stirs in us, it causes us to pray. Let's work through these three things. Your heart, our church, and the city. See about, our, see about our prayers. Let's start with the individual. I'll talk about myself. I, I, I'm praying that God makes me, makes my knee-jerk reaction to criticism to be that of repentance. Because my knee-jerk reaction is to be defensive and rationalize away my sin. That's the work of renewal that I want God to do in me. And the reason I'm praying for it is because I think God's stirring in me. And I think God's the only one who could bring it about. I can't rebuild that. What renewal are you praying on, praying for on behalf of our church? I've got my own prayer requests that I have for myself. I gave you one example. I've got another prayer list of things I'm praying for, not for you as individuals, though that happens, but I also have things I'm praying for us as a collective body. And I'm praying that God would make us a generous church. I'm praying that God would make our church reflect the neighborhood. I'm praying that God would make us a church that treasures Jesus deeply. How about for our city and our region? Where do we need God to stir? How can we pray towards that end? Well, again, I'm praying that God would plant 10 churches in our region in the next 20 years. I pray that God would use our campus ministry folks. I pray that God would do something about the, the, the opiate crisis, the sex industry in our neighborhood. He do something about poverty. I want God to work in our city. I'm praying for God to stir. See, it's easy to get pessimistic. It's easy to not see the hope. But I promise that the state of Israel in 539 is much worse off than your life. It's much worse off than our church, and it's much, much worse off than our city. It was a pile of rubble. But God stirred. See, Jesus rose again from the dead. He, he really is alive. He lives in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus finds his address in your gut. Think about our church. Ephesians 2 says that we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. God lives in our church so he can stir us. Think about our world. I know our world is a dark place, but God's not giving up on it. He's not giving up on it. And we see that with Cyrus. Cyrus was a pagan ruler and God was at work even in him. So if you enter into the life of someone who's unchurched and unbeliever, when you engage with a a larger, evil, systemic issue, you've got to realize that God's at work there too. God didn't show up when you showed up. Because he lives in the world. So if God lives in you, if he dwells in our church, if he's at work in the world, don't you think he's able to bring renewal? And aren't you hungry for it? Don't you want more than what you're experiencing? I do. And may God stir in us as individuals, stir in us as a church, and stir in our city to bring about renewal. In Christ's name, amen.